Listen. Just listen. I'm Miles Pulaski, and you're listening to Second Story Podcast. Second Story is Serendipity Theatre Collective's hybrid performance series of stories, wine, and music. A collaboration among writers, actors, musicians, and others to create good stories and good times. The stories are written by the performers themselves. Sometimes funny, sometimes poignant, always thought-provoking. And now, Second Story storyteller, Andy Baiades. At my wedding, my best man said, I've never known Andy to be so sure about anything. And six years later, I am still sure and happy and a father. But like every 36-year-old, there was a time in my life when I was 22. And when my best man spoke those words, that's where my mind took me. I'm staring at a payphone 10 feet from me. This is Philadelphia at rush hour. This is my early 20s. It's been raining all day, but since the sun has set, the rain's hidden itself in a cityscape that's mostly shadow. I can see the rain only on my glasses, when the traffic light is yellow, when the passing red Toyota says it's okay. My memory tells me my walk to that payphone took 45 minutes, and the rainy rush hour avenue was dead quiet, and the only sound in my ears was one 45-minute-long intake of breath. I haven't slept for 32 hours. Last night, two friends and I drove 300 miles so I could convince a woman I'd never kissed that we should be lovers instead of friends. But I think we were meant to be more than lovers because Sarah, I am sure, is my future wife. I drop in my dime, I dial her number. The phone rings. It rings. In 1995, when I was on the verge of my 21st birthday, my 18-year-old girlfriend of three years dumped me for a tall coke addict. <laughs> and on one broken-hearted day, I decided to apply for a summer job at the Decordova Museum in Lincoln, Massachusetts. I turned into the parking lot for my interview and was awestruck. A sprawling campus dotted with modern sculptures and a castle-like museum at the top of a hill I felt a surge of optimism. I remember thinking, this is the kind of day you walk into a place and meet your future wife. And I kid you not, 30 seconds later, I stepped across the threshold of the museum and beheld Sarah, the receptionist. (laughs) And at that precise moment, I tripped over the first step. Barely missing a collision with the floor, I collected myself. I told Sarah I was applying for a job. She called the guy. I waited, we chatted. We both sucked at small talk, but she was better at faking it. And she was blonde and fit and way out of my league. I interviewed, and speaking of arrangements I have no business seeking, I wound up being hired as a security guard. Sarah said, it was nice to meet you in exactly the right way. And I floated off to Sears to buy my navy blue pants and short sleeve shirt. I wore Doc Martens and a solid navy blue tie, and 15 minutes into my first day, I was an expert at my job. Don't let anyone stand at the exhibits. No photography, the bathroom is over there. Bang. And I got to work near Sarah. But in our first conversation after I started work, she mentioned her boyfriend. In a way, this was good news. Had she been available, I would have blown it. 
Instead, we hit it off. Sarah would sit with me during her breaks and eventually during lunch. Small talk led to disclosure and flashes of intimacy. We came from completely different worlds and it was either courage or naivete, but I didn't care. My dad was union, my mom a housewife. At Fitchburg State College, the best compliment I ever received was from a professor who said, I think your writing's really exceptional. Although I've taught at this place for 30 years, I have no idea how good the kids at Brandeis are. You might be average. <laughs> Sarah went to Brown. Her family was wealthy and came from that part of New York that's not quite Connecticut, but could buy Connecticut. Her father was an optometrist, Gene Wilder's optometrist. <clears throat> and Aaron, her boyfriend, was a soon-to-be dermatologist with a very similar background. Sarah was part clumsy librarian, part lost, soulful prisoner. She drove with the attentiveness of Mr. Magoo and was prone to petite fits of paranoia. She was bored and unhappy with Aaron, stifled by her family's upper-class expectations. Looking back, I don't think she was drawn to my sensitive artist act. I think she was drawn to my undaunted pursuit of the taken wealthy Jewish upper-class daughter of Gene Wilder's optometrist. <laughs> she wanted to reject mores and follow her passion. As we grew closer, we vowed to keep in touch after the summer because she was gonna go get her master's degree in Philadelphia and I was going back to dog-earing my Norton anthology at FSC. One day, I found a hidden stairway up to the roof of the museum and not long before Sarah's last day, I convinced her to join me up there. We climbed the stairs, we looked around, lake, trees, hills, sculptures. She wore a white dress and the wind made her look somewhat goddess-like atop that castle. I considered kissing her and I think she would have let me. But my feelings for Sarah were unlike my feelings for anyone at that point. I didn't want to seduce Sarah. I wanted to marry her. Plus, I was dressed like a mall cop. <laughs> the exhibit I was guarding with my life was an indoor 18-hole playable miniature golf course called Strokes of Genius. Each hole was designed by a modern artist. Sarah's favorite exhibit had these little carved stick figures made from branches. She thought they were cute. I was pretty sure I could make one, and I did. <laughs> On her last day of work, I brought a freshly carved stick man made from twigs in my parents' backyard. We said goodbye in the parking lot. As we spoke, I, I wanted to reach back into the car and give her the gift, but I hesitated until she finally offered a hug and said goodbye. Flustered by my failure, I didn't notice in time she was kissing my cheek, so I blew any chance to kiss her back. That day, I confided in a middle-aged coworker. I told him, I'm gonna marry Sarah. <laughs> nope, he said confidently. She's gonna marry the doctor. He used to tell Sarah that all the time. Marry the doctor! But he didn't know how unhappy Sarah was with, well, technically medical resident. As my semester unfolded, Sarah and I stayed in touch with some handwritten letters. I was cast in a play and began rehearsals. I was fixated, lonely, a sense of destiny castrated, haunted me. One night, the day before a tech rehearsal for What the Butler Saw, I was telling the story to Becky and Guy, 
As the story wrapped up, Becky, ever the romantic idealist, blurted, we should drive there tonight and you should tell her how you feel. (laughs) Guy's eyes lit up. He had a wild, brave streak that always inspired me. Plus he was sleeping with Becky. Let's do it, he said. And even though Becky and I were due at tech rehearsal the next morning, we began a drunk five-hour pilgrimage to the city of brotherly love without so much as a phone call to our director. It was 1 a.m. Guy got behind the wheel. I grabbed Sarah's address. Becky took out some cash. It was raining, but the mood was electric, and the fact that my fellow adventurers were willing to do this was not lost on me. Impulsive elation gave way to sleepless exhaustion. I stared through the drizzled drizzled glass and crafted a thousand confessional monologues as Massachusetts gave way to Connecticut, to New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania. At around 9 a.m., I called Sarah. I left a message. Hey, I'm in Philadelphia. Let's hang out. Call me, call me back. <laughs> On South Street, we went from record store to bookstore to McDonald's, which was all we could afford. Guy and Becky had been on love heroin the whole way to Philadelphia, delaying us at rest stops by spontaneously making out against the snack machines. In Philly, they had a little tiff, but spirits remained high. Passionate, romantic people feel everything deeply, and this was fine with me. I called again. I left a message. We ate our third meal at McDonald's. I called Sarah, left a message. Guy and Becky had a slightly bigger tiff. Call, message. At a certain point in the day, it became clear that I needed to set a deadline for withdrawing the troops. No one had really slept, and we had a five-hour drive back to campus. As rainy day became rainy night, we reached my deadline. I was about a half block from her apartment. I vowed not to leave Philadelphia without telling Sarah how I felt, even if it was from a payphone. Becky stayed with the car. Guy walked me halfway to the phone and hugged me. He looked me in the eyes and said, I love you, Andy. (laughs) It wasn't exhaustion talking, but exhaustion kicked open the door. I love you too, I said. I limped the remaining 10 feet to the payphone, knees trembling. I called. She didn't answer. I left a 10-minute message. I don't remember a word of it, but (laughs) it was vaguely when Harry met Sally-ish. I know I told her how amazing I thought she was and that we should be more than friends. I stopped short of saying, I love you. The ride back was somber. Somewhere in New Jersey, Guy and Becky broke up. He slammed his hands against the steering wheel, each of them screaming, the details are lost on me. I only remember the hot white magnificence of a rapturous infatuation right before it dies. She ran from the car, he drove after her, talked her back in. We all drove home. It was still raining. Deer carcasses were everywhere. (laughs) I got a call from Sarah a few days later. She was sorry she missed me. It had been the only day the whole semester she was away from her apartment all day. Instead of responding directly to my bleary confession, she sent me a letter and told me to look for it. I told her she should come see my play. I'd like that, she said, in exactly the right way. The letter came. It was good. (laughs) 
Nothing too declarative, but really good. She had listened to my message a hundred times. She had feelings too, but wasn't sure what they meant. I'll come visit you in Boston, she wrote. We can spend the day together and see what happens. I was optimism, triumph, destiny. I wrote Sarah back, please come see my play, I implored. Perhaps I thought my Dr. Prentice would seal the deal. My play closed and Sarah never made it. We connected on the phone a short while after. And she said, hi. And with the cheeriness of an old friend with great news, she said, guess what? What, I asked. I'm marrying the doctor. I don't remember the rest of the conversation, but I played it cool. Marriage was the one obstacle I was not willing to ignore. She came back to Boston after, I, after uh, she finished her degree, and we hung out a bunch of times. I went to her wedding in New York. Gene Wilder looked good. <laughs> after the wedding, Sarah confessed something. <clears throat> she actually did try to see my play. She even got on a bus and was going to surprise me. Along the way, the bus broke down. Aaron picked her up. That weekend, he proposed. It was fate, she decided. In 1994, the professor who gave me that ridiculous compliment had a stage reading of his awful play. And with me was the girlfriend who left me for the tall coke addict. Also, three future girlfriends were in the audience. And on stage, playing the maid, was my future wife, Ginevra Gallo, whom I would not meet until she auditioned for the Neo-Futurist six years later. Every woman I would ever say I love you to was in the same room with me at the same time. And the star of my love life, my wife, was on stage. And I wouldn't learn about this confluence until 2004, 10 years after it happened, one week before my bride and I exchanged vows and my best man declared, I've never known Andy to be so sure about anything. And as he finished his speech, I thought about that play I saw in 1994. Half a dozen years before I was introduced to my wife, one year before I even met Sarah. That night in the audience, I was only sure of a couple of things. I was a better writer than my ass-faced professor. <laughs> and the girl who played the maid, she was pretty hot. That was Andy Byades. If his story gives you ideas for your own second story, we'd love to hear them. Please join us at our ongoing series at Webster's Wine Bar and The Morseland, or one of our upcoming special events. Visit our website for more details. Second Story Podcast is brought to you by Amanda Delheimer, Megan Steelstra, Ozzy Toten, Mikhail Fixel, and Sherry Pentamone. I am Miles Pulaski. Second Story is funded in part by the Gaylord and Dorothy Donnelly Foundation, the Illinois Arts Council Estate Agency, the Richard H. Treehouse Foundation, City Arts Grants, Arts and Business Council, the Chicago Community Foundation, a part of the Chicago Community Trust, and the Arts Work Fund for organizational development and listeners just like you. To find out more about Second Story, the performances, our performers, or to make a donation, please visit us at secondstory.com. <laughs>